Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for the first full membership shoot of the Habura. It is very exciting. Um, we have the honor and privilege to have with us today Rabbi Dr. Sam Liebens, who will open the first of, please God, three-part series on the fundamentals of philosophy and logic. Uh, before we start, I'll just say a few quick words. Um, we are in exciting times with uh, the Habura membership mode. For those who don't know, we have an active uh, Discord community for members, uh, which also has our rabbis and leaders, such as Rabbi Liebenzan. Uh, God willing, our journal will be coming out soon. Exciting shiurim are planned. And currently, we have over 240 members from around the world. So uh, stay, stay tuned and take advantage. Um, this past year, I think we as a Habura really identified and worked on refining our principles. Uh, we came to recognize that our Torah must speak to reality and be cutting edge. We came to recognize the covenantal nature of our relationship with God. Now the author of the book is the author of the world. But now I think in membership mode, it's time for the heavy lifting. It's time to actually work out those details and start applying those principles. So if we recognize that our goal is to know God and to know his expressions is to know him, then developing our greatest um, our mind is essential. This is why uh, this series, Fundamentals of Philosophy and Logic, is so important. And there's no greater person to give this over than uh, Rabbi Dr. Sam Liebens. So Rabbi Dr. Sam Liebens is a research fellow in the philosophy department at the University of Haifa, dynamic Jewish educator. He has studied at Yeshivat HaKotel, Yeshivat HaMiftar, Yeshivat HaRetzion. He holds a PhD in philosophy from Burbeck College and held postdoctoral positions at the University of Notre Dame and Rutgers. Rabbi Liebens is the author of Principles of Judaism, published by Oxford University Press. So with that said, Rabbi Liebens, the stage is yours. Thank you so much. And it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I would much rather be talking about uh, philosophy and logic um, with a group of people uh, committed to, to uh, the application of, of, of Torah learning and coming close to Hashem than watching uh, England lose to Denmark uh, in the semi-final of uh, the Euros. Having said that, um, if you must keep an eye on the score as you, uh, uh, you know, as you listen, I, I, I won't, you know, I won't hold it against you. Now, um, it's true. I teach philosophy uh, at the University of Haifa. I tend to teach secular philosophy. My first book was on Bertrand Russell, um, a well-known British philosopher. Um, although I do a lot of writing of Jewish philosophy. And generally, when I teach in the Jewish community, I like to teach Torah, like what I take to be, you know, um, unambiguously Torah. But I was asked uh, by the Chabura um, to break that trend um, and address the Chabura about stuff that isn't um, overtly, you know, part of the body of the Torah, we're not going to be citing any uh, uh, Jewish texts. We're not going to, you know, whether they belong to Torah Shebich Kav or the Torah Shebel Peh. Um, but I think it's undeniable that if you want to live up uh, to the principle of, of Rasag, Rasag Yiga'on, and to the principle of the Rambam, Maimonides, and to the principles which I think motivate, motivate the classical mode of Sephardi, Sephardi Torah, that the Chabura is interested in um, rehabilitating, um, 
And the principle is that revelation needs to be interpreted in the light of reason. Um, and if that is the case, if, if we have an obligation to interpret revelation in the light of reason, uh, then we have to sharpen the tools with which we reason. And um, philosophy is about doing that. Now, there are multiple areas of philosophy we could focus upon. And this is only a three-part series. And um, philosophy is as much, uh, is it, philosophy is a lifetime's endeavor. Um, what I've decided to do is to focus each class on one of the core areas of philosophy, although there are more than three core areas of philosophy. So even there, I had to make some choices. Um, this first class is going to be about logic. The second class is going to be about something called metaphysics. And the third class is going to be about epistemology, which are, like I said, three of the core areas of philosophy. Um, and my hope is that thinking about these things, understanding what these areas of philosophy are about, um, might help the beginning of this process in which we, as committed Torah Jews, um, embark upon sharpening those tools that might be um, useful or even necessary in this process of interpreting revelation in the light of reason. So one of the key areas of um, philosophy, of course, is logic. Um, it's well known, I think, that the Rambam, Maimonides, wrote a, a short textbook on logic in which he introduced his readers to what was then the state of art, the state of the art of, uh, of, of the, the science, you could call it, of logic. Um, although that science has come on somewhat in, in, in the last few centuries, as you would expect. Um, what is logic? Well, I keep looking over here, not because the football's there, it's not. Um, I have two monitors and um, I've got the PowerPoint up on this monitor. Okay. So logic is, well, it provides for us the rules of proper reasoning. Well, what does that mean? It's not about describing how people actually reason, right? It's not, about, it's not a descriptive art in, or a descriptive science in which you try and explain how is it that people go about reasoning. Um, that's, I suppose, for psychology to, to, to perform. That, that's an important science too, to understand how people actually reason, um, how people draw conclusions, how people form beliefs, how people uh, make inferences. That's an important study in its own right. If we want to come and if we want to try and understand the human being better, that belongs to psychology. In a sense, logic is a prescriptive discipline. It's not telling us how we do something, it's telling us how we should do it. Right? So logic is about how people should reason. Um, okay. At any time, if you want to uh, stop me and raise a question just put up your virtual hand because you'll disappear. Uh, I, I can't see all of your faces at once in one go. If you put up your virtual hand, your, your, your um, name and face shoot up to the front of my screen. So that's the way to, and don't be afraid to interrupt. Right now, 
There are two main forms of reasoning. There are actually more that have been identified by logicians than, the, than just these two, but these are the two main forms of reasoning. Um, and therefore, logic could study either one of them. There's deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. Now, Sherlock Holmes is often called a master of deduction, but that's actually an error. Sherlock Holmes, what the type of reasoning that Sherlock Holmes performs is, is generally induction. So with that, if Sir Arthur Conan Doyle were, had, been, had, had known his logic better, he would, have, he would have described Sherlock Holmes as a master of induction, not a master of deduction. In fact, Sherlock Holmes rarely uh, uh, engages in any particularly impressive act of deduction. His particularly impressive modes of reasoning, his particularly impressive inferences are inductive. So what's the difference? Well, let's start with inductive reasoning. Whenever you have an argument, you have the argument has a conclusion. And, and actually, you can use the phrase argument or, and inference. You can use them interchangeably. Because one of the meanings of the word argument is, is, is like when you're fighting with someone. But no, you can have an argument just in your head. It's how you arrive at a conclusion. So you could call it an argument. You could call it an inference. An inference or an argument always has a conclusion. But before you get to the conclusion, you have the premises, right? So the premises are the things that, that um, you assume or you know, and are supposed to lead you to the conclusion. Now, an inductive argument is one that makes the conclusion more likely than it seemed before the argument, but it doesn't conclusively prove that the conclusion is true. Inductive arguments, again, I'll say it again, an inductive argument is one whose premises render the conclusion more likely than the conclusion was without the argument. But an inductive argument doesn't necessitate the truth of the conclusion. Let me give you an example. For a long time, I'm not sure if this is actually true, but it doesn't matter. Pretend this is true. I think it might be. For a long time, people thought there were only white swans. Swans are white. And they had a very large and extensive data set. All over the known world, people had seen swans. And every single time, without exception, they saw that the swan was white. Right? Every swan in that data set was white. On the basis of that data set, we conclude, oh, do you know what? All swans are white. And that was a very reasonable induction. That was a good induction, right? Because the more swans you saw, the more likely it became that all swans were white because your data set kept growing and there was never a single exception. That's how induction works. And inductive logic is interesting, um, but it's never foolproof. The data made the conclusion likely, but it didn't guarantee that the conclusion was true. 
And indeed, the conclusion was false. Okay, I, I think it was, according to the story I've heard, it's a story that, that logic teachers like to tell, is that it was only when we got to um, the Antipodes, only, only in Australia and New Zealand or something like that, did we discover that, oh gosh, look at these birds. They look just like swans. Oh, but they're black. Um, they're black swans. Um, nothing about the data set before we discovered that first black swan, nothing proved decisively that all swans were white, just made it more likely. And it tends to be that in the sciences, in the empirical sciences, where we investigate empirical evidence to come to conclusions about how the world is, we tend to be engaging in inductive reasoning. But a lot of, philosoph a lot of philosophy is deductive. And I'll explain what deductive means in a minute. Um, well, I'll say now, a deductive inference or a deductive argument is one whose premises necessitate or guarantee the conclusion. So mathematics is a deductive um, discipline. Okay? If, you've, if, if you engage the mathematical argument and you've, you've done all of the, the, the preliminary work correctly to infer a conclusion, then it can't possibly be false. And if it's false, it's because you made an error somewhere earlier on. Whereas in this inductive argument, nobody made an error, right? It's nobody's fault that there were no black swans in the data set. They had, a, they had as big a data set as they could possibly get, um, you know, given the technological and geographical limitations. Nobody done anything wrong. And they were right to conclude using inductive logic that um, all swans are white, but they're not. There are some that are black. Whereas if you've engaged in a mathematical argument and you've done all of the work correctly, then there's no such thing as getting a false conclusion from your good argument. Uh, deductive arguments are ones that necessitate their conclusion. It's a little bit more complicated than that, as I'll explain. I'm going to give you an example of a completely what we call valid deductive argument in order to give you a taste for what deductive arguments are, also what some of their strengths and weaknesses are. Okay, premise one, everything with wings can fly. Is that premise true? No, okay, penguins have wings, they can't fly, all sorts of things have wings that can't fly. It's a false premise, that's a shame. Premise two, Queen Elizabeth has wings. Is that premise true? Not that we know of, right? I mean, there is that whole conspiracy of the lizard people, but I think that's anti-Semitic and lizards don't have wings anyway. So even if she is a lizard, she doesn't have wings and I've got no reason to believe that she's a lizard. So she doesn't, she doesn't have wings, but okay. If premise one and two of this argument were true, then it follows deductively that Queen Elizabeth can fly. Does everyone see that? If it were the case that everything with wings could fly, and if it were the case that Queen Elizabeth has wings, then it would follow without further ado that Queen Elizabeth can fly. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a deductive argument. It's one, everything above the line is called a premise. 
everything below the line is called a conclusion. This is an argument whose conclusion cannot be false if the premises are true. That's a deductive argument, okay? Now, we need to make a, distinguish between, a distinction between a valid argument and a sound argument, okay? A valid argument is one that really is deductive. Because sometimes you think you've got a deductive argument and you're wrong. So a valid argument is one whose premises really do necessitate the conclusion. Therefore, this argument on your screens is a valid argument because its premises do necessitate the conclusion. Sadly, the premises are false. A sound argument is an argument which is valid and has no false premises. Now, it's not up to the logician to decide whether an argument is sound. To decide whether this argument is sound, for example, you'd need to discuss things with an ornithologist who knows things about birds and wings, I suppose. Maybe, an, maybe some aerodynamic engineer could help, an aeronautical engineer could help to, to give us evidence about premise one. I suppose only somebody very familiar with the anatomy of Queen Elizabeth could, could decisively rule out premise two. And therefore, it's not up to logic alone to decide if an argument is sound. What logic wants to know is whether arguments are valid. Okay, that's all logic can do for you. Logic can tell you if an argument is valid. It can't tell you if the conclusions are true because it can't tell you whether the premises are true but it can tell you if an argument's valid. And again, a valid argument is one whose conclusion is necessitated by the truth of the premises. Are the premises true? I don't know. I don't know if the argument's sound. That's for other people to uh, investigate. Okay, so what we've got uh, is we, we've understood there's something called inductive logic. Inductive logic is what's used by scientists. Uh, often scientists use both inductive and deductive logic. There's mathematics in science, for example. Um, but inductive arguments are one that only try to make the conclusion seem more probable than it had seemed before. Deductive arguments are ones which try to decisively prove the conclusion by showing that it follows necessarily from the premises. Uh, um, and philosophers are particularly interested in deductive arguments. For example, are there any deductive arguments that prove that God exists? Okay, uh, if you take the four central arguments offered by the Rambam in the Moran of Achim for the existence of God, they're all deductive arguments. They have empirical premises, premises about uh, the physical universe, premises about astronomy and the orbit of the planets, etc., etc. Those premises, right, it's not for the logician to decide whether they're true or not, but the arguments are supposed to be deductively valid. Okay, they're deductive arguments. If the Rambam is right about all of the premises in his four arguments, then it follows with necessity that God exists, if indeed his arguments really are valid. That's what logic's supposed to help us with. And I hope that shows you why logic is so important 
to the endeavor of, of, of Jewish philosophy, right? Uh, do we have good reasons for believing the conclusions that we hold, that God exists, that God gave us the Torah, that we have a relationship with God, that we're supposed to act in certain ways. All of those conclusions are believed for reasons and those reasons tend um, to have the form of an inference or an argument um, from premises of which we're more certain. Um, are those arguments valid? One needs to study logic to know sometimes. Okay. Remember, in, just interrupt me with questions along the way and don't be embarrassed to do that. Um, it's much easier if you raise a hand than put something in the chat because I'll, I'll see it. All right. So, hello, Simon. You need to unmute yourself. Yeah, yeah I just unmuted. Uh, um, it's something I don't understand about the distinction between induction and deduction. Yes. You said in mathematics, what's used is, is deduction. Always deductive, yeah. Although there is something called mathematical induction, but that's a... That's exactly my question. Mathematical induction is when you say that if something is true of x equals one, and you can prove that if it's true of x, it's true of x plus one. Oh, I didn't realize, you know, what level I was teaching to. Uh, uh, that, that's a very... Um, high level potential counterexample. So I can't answer it now, but most mathematicians or at least most philosophers of mathematics would argue that what we call mathematical induction is actually deductive. Um, the, the place to, I know that's very confusing, the place to see an explanation of that is in a charming book by Bertrand Russell uh, written when he was in prison during the First World War called um, An Introduction to Mathematical Philosophy. And there's a whole chapter, if I'm not mistaken, on mathematical induction. Okay, so I'm sorry to do that to you, but I'm not gonna bring, in, I'm not gonna, uh, uh, bring it into the, uh, the center of our discussion, um, but it's a great question. Uh, yes, okay, all right. So we've made a distinction between induction and deduction. Um, we have now to make another distinction between what we might call informal logic and formal logic. And basically, what I mean by formal logic is logic that you can't do without symbols. <laughs> and that, that, or kind of like mathematical symbols. I'll, sh I'll show you what I mean later. And informal logic is logic you can do with like a normal language like what, what philosophers would call a natural language rather than a theoretical language. So logic that you can do in kind of basically regular English, that's what we would call informal language, uh, informal logic. Formal logic is a much more precise discipline that you can't actually do in English, French or Hebrew, but you actually require um, a certain type of mathematical symbolism, a more technical language. Um, we'll get to that later. I want to give you an example of what we can do with informal logic. One of the things you learn when you study informal logic is just how to identify fallacies. A fallacy is basically an argument that looks good, but is hiding some sort of defect. Um, so we're talking about identifying fallacies. And I thought I would share with you a comic strip that I like. Uh, there's a joke comic strip online 
I think it's called Existential Comics, uh, and it often involves philosophers. So they have uh, a superhero called Fallacy Man, Master of Philosophy, Lord of Debate, Sultan of Reason. And his job is to detect fallacies wherever they rear their ugly head. And, and it, actually, the comic strip gives a beautiful example of a number of informal fallacies, and I'll, and I'll show you how so. Okay. So one chap is sitting next to another in the pub over a pint of beer. He says, yeah, I don't know, man. Peyton Manning says this is the most talented roster he's been on. I think this might be their year. In jumps fallacy man, appeal to authority. Dude, what the hell? So there's a, there is a fallacy called appeal to authority where you make out a conclusion is true merely because somebody believes that it's true. Now, actually, philosophers are a bit torn about this. Sometimes arguments from authority are legitimate. They're never deductively valid, but they can, they can be in, inductively persuasive. For example, um, I'm told um, that the Pfizer um, vaccine is in the ballpark of 90% um, effective against um, coronavirus. How do I know that? Because some experts told me. And the thing is, I've got reason to believe that uh, the testimony of immunologists, epidemiologists, the relevant qualified authorities, I've got reason to believe that um, they're more likely right about this stuff than my, um, than my uninformed aunt who happens to be an anti-vaxxer, right? I, and, and philosophers will tell you, well, okay, yeah, the fact that, that somebody has relevant expertise means they're more likely to be right than somebody who doesn't have relevant expertise. Nobody would deny that. But that's at best an inductive argument because we're speaking about something being more likely. Somebody with relevant expertise is more likely to be right than somebody without relevant expertise. But, but people with relevant expertise can be wrong and they have been wrong in the past about all sorts of things. So A, if you present an argument from authority as a deductive proof, so-and-so said P, therefore P is definitely true, that's a fallacy. Moreover, sometimes we appeal to unqualified authorities. So I don't want to get too political here, but Noam Chomsky is a professor of linguistics. And even though many of his views in linguistics are controversial and remain controversial to this day, nobody could deny um, with any good reason that he is an expert linguist. And therefore his testimony about generative grammar or other linguistic doctrines should be given more weight than the testimony of a non-expert. But the fact that he's a professor of linguistics 
doesn't make his views about capitalism or Zionism or, or communism any more reliable than somebody else. Like, and yet you hear people say, oh, but Professor Chomsky says, as if the use of professor somehow makes it more likely that what he said was true. You know, um, um, it's completely irrelevant and that's a fallacy. And, and the thing is, sometimes just knowing, having in your mind almost like um, a vocabulary of fallacies, just knowing the full range of fallacies can help you isolate them when you see them. Just being aware that such things occur can help you isolate them better when you see them. And this is a fallacy. Yes, there's a hand up. Hi, yeah, this is Berthold. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't have a better example to cite, but uh, let me cite one example of the Torah Mm -hmm. and what rabbis later decided. And I would like to um, then understand how, um, you know, in, in terms of logic, um, we would place the authority of the rabbi. <clears throat> There's probably more than one example, but the one example that comes to my mind is that the Torah allows the man to marry um, several women. Later on, uh, some rabbinic authority decided that this should not be followed anymore for reasons A, B, C. Mm -hmm. Now, if I construct this uh, correctly, um, and you will, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, the, rab the rabbinic authority would claim its authority based on God permitting the rabbinic authority to make this, um, yeah, to, to decide upon this. Whereas if I then go back to say, when did God say this? I come to, I come to either Maimonides or I come to belief. In the end, I have to believe that God gave the authority to the authority to the rabbis. Now, how do I place this all in the context of logic and authority, which you just Good. mentioned? Good. So a few things are relevant. It's a lovely question, right? You could even say, is there some fallacy of appeal to authority in our, in our trusting the rabbis when we do? So I want to give you two considerations. So I, lo I love the question, because like I said, I, I, I want to teach Torah to the, the community um, <laughs> mainly rather than my secular philosophy. Um, there are two responses we can give, and they're both relevant. The first is that um, Jewish law doesn't always describe an existing state of affairs in the way that, um, that these guys in the pub are. They're trying to describe whether or not this is or isn't the most talented roster that Peyton Manning has been on. There's a state of affairs and they're trying to see, you know, what's true, what's false. Halakha, as a legal system, is sometimes stipulated into being. So for example, um, in England, if you've got two yellow lines by the side of the road, it means you're not allowed to park there. Now, there's nothing about the yellow lines themselves that make it not okay to park on them. It's just because the, the, the legal authorities have stipulated from here on in, no one shall park. 
And that's actually quite a different area. So the question is, um, does the halachic system give, let's say, Rabbeinu Gershon, the ability to create new legal facts? And if it does, then, um, then he can say from here on in, you can't marry more than one person. Now, that's very different to the type of authority we're talking about here. Here isn't, a, isn't a, the authority to create new facts. Here it's an, a kind of a, an authority about knowledge. Who knows how things already are, right? Um, does Peyton Manning have better access to how the world really is than you or someone else? That's the type of authority we're talking about in this slide. Whereas the type of authority you're talking about is an authority not about uh, knowledge, not an authority to know things, but actually an authority to create new facts. Which is, so that's one consideration, okay? So the word authority has slightly different meanings in these two contexts. The second consideration is that the Rambam says very explicitly in the Mishnah Torah that we don't believe that Moshe Rabbeinu was a true prophet because of the miracles he did. And in fact, even future prophets, you know, in Jewish law, one of the ways that you, you get the status bestowed upon you of Navi, prophet, is by doing a sign or a wonder. But again, we don't believe that the words of the prophet are true because they perform a sign or a wonder, says Maimonides. We believe that Moses was a prophet because we, the, collected, the collective Jewish people, stood at Mount Sinai and heard God speak to Moses. And therefore, collectively, the Jewish people came to know that Moshe was a prophet. Um, and he came down with a legal system that created this status called Navi. And that status says, if somebody does a, a, a miracle, then they, get, they can get to wear, if you like, the Navi hat, and then you have to obey them and this and that. But uh, if the Navi ever tells you something against the Torah or something demonstrably false, then you strip them of their title because we're not impressed by magic tricks or miracles. We're you know, that would be a fallacy of appeal to authority. Oh, he can do a magic trick, therefore he must be telling the truth, right? So, so the two things I wanted to say in response to your um, really fascinating question is one, we need to be careful what type of authority we're talking about. The fallacy of authority is about the authority, is, is about what we would call an epistemic authority, knowing things with authority. Whereas rabbinic authority is often about the right to create new halachic facts. The second piece, uh, the second response to you is that it seems to me that Jewish law, especially in, in, in the Mishnah Torah and, in, in, uh, in, in other places too, is very aware of the fallacy of authority. We don't believe prophets just because they can do miracles. Such a Gaon says in the introduction to Emunot uh, Dayot, somebody tells me I should be Christian because Jesus could walk on water. He says, well, even if he could walk on water, that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't prove that any of the things he says are true. It's like, wow, he can walk on water. Um, Xavier, thank you, bud. Hi, uh, thank you. On, on the authority of knowledge, I think it's also derived through um, 
our own way of navigating life. We, we, we make heuristic decisions mm -hmm. and we assume because somebody has reached certain credentials that we can take their words for it yes. without having to verify them. Yes, we couldn't live otherwise. Um, um, Hilary Putnam, one of the great philosophers, he talks about this as a division of labor. We can't, you know, we can't prove everything. So we delegate, let the scientists figure out the science and let the mathematicians figure out the maths and let and historians figure out the history. And we do have to trust people. But the thing is, don't pretend that that's deductively valid. Don't, don't make a certainty out of it. You're right, it's a heuristic, it's useful, it's reasonable. But when people try to claim m more than what their expertise gives them a right to claim, that's where, the, that's where fallacy man jumps on the bar, okay? Um, another example. Yeah, but Glenn Beck's an idiot. You shouldn't listen to anything he says. Ad hominem! Ad hominem, ad hominem, ad hominem! <laughs> right. So one of the famous fallacies in, in, in informal logic is called an ad hominem, where you use some piece of information that casts a person in a bad light in order to disprove the truth of what the person said. But the fact that, that Glenn Beck is an idiot doesn't mean that everything he says is false. Even a broken clock, by the way, can be, can be right twice a day, right? Um, and we need to watch out for these, right? Just because an idiot said something or a nasty person said something or, you know, or a hypocrite said something, it doesn't mean that the thing said is false. And sometimes, you know, the fallacy of ad hominem uh, um, tries to make it seem otherwise. Here's a nice one. I lost my job, my wife left me, my back problems have gotten much worse. Hang in there, man. After all that, some good's bound to come along. Yeah, that's true, I'm due. Moron! <laughs> it's called the gambler's fallacy. Okay, the gambler's fallacy says that um, the more that something hasn't happened, the more often something hasn't happened, the more likely it is to happen in the future. Right. So you you keep putting your quarters into the um, into the slot machine. Wow, I've lost five hundred times in a row. I'm really due to win now. Right. Like, and every time it gets more likely going. No, <laughs> that's called the gambler's fallacy. It's actually the opposite of induction, right? It's like, how many white swans uh, do you need to find before you're convinced that swans are white? Well, if you were to use the gambler's fallacy, wow, I bet the next one will be purple. We've had so many white swans, right? Wow, I bet the next one, will be... no, okay? It's the gambler's fallacy. And I, it's surprising how attractive the gambler's fallacy can be sometimes. In our day-to-day -day lives, we walk into it, okay? And it's a good one to be kind of um, aware of. Carrots are better for you than candy because it comes from nature. No, naturalistic fallacy. Eat dirt, kid, then learn how to think. Okay, the, the fallacy man isn't very nice. Um, the, the naturalistic fallacy is when you have a conclusion that has a prescription in it. So that's a conclusion that says something about what you ought to do 
or a conclusion that is evaluative, right? So a conclusion like carrots are better than candy, that's an evaluative conclusion, or you shouldn't eat meat, right? That's a, that's a prescriptive conclusion. So, so the naturalistic fallacy is a fallacy that occurs when you have a prescriptive or an evaluative conclusion where there are no prescriptive or evaluative premises. And the idea is you can't actually conjure an evaluation, yeshma ayin, out of nowhere. Only evaluative premises can give rise to evaluative conclusions. Only prescriptive premises can give rise to prescriptive conclusions. Let me give you an example to make it clearer. Let's say Simon is a vegetarian. Therefore, Simon shouldn't eat meat. Well, that doesn't follow. Right? Maybe he's wrong to be a vegetarian. Right? That Simon is a vegetarian is a non-evaluative statement. It's just a description of a state of affairs. Simon shouldn't eat meat. That's a prescription. Here's an argument that doesn't fall foul of the naturalistic fallacy. Premise one, Simon is a vegetarian. Premise two, vegetarians shouldn't eat meat. Conclusion, Simon shouldn't eat meat. That's a perfect argument. In fact, it's deductively valid. But notice that one of the premises already had a prescription in it, which was vegetarians shouldn't eat meat. Okay, Simon's a vegetarian, vegetarians shouldn't eat meat, therefore Simon shouldn't eat meat. But if you want to say Simon is a vegetarian, therefore Simon shouldn't eat meat, that's, that's to fall foul of the naturalistic fallacy. This young girl wouldn't have made a mistake had she said, natural things are better than synthetic ones. Carrots are natural. Candies are synthetic. Therefore, carrots are better than candies. She needs to have an evaluative statement in the premises. Otherwise, she's not entitled to an evaluative statement in the conclusion. Now, you might think she's wrong. You might think she's wrong that, you know, it's not true that natural things are better for you, right? Carbon monoxide is a natural, uh, you know, a naturally a, 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 a present gas in, in, in small amounts in the atmosphere. It's not good for you, right? Uh, so she may be wrong, but if she says, Natural things are better for you than synthetic ones. Carrots are natural, candy are synthetic, therefore carrots are better for you than uh, candy. She wouldn't have made a logical error. She may have made some other sort of error because may maybe you think one of her premises are false. Are you with me? So this is called the naturalistic fallacy. It was really discovered relatively late uh, by G.E. Moore. Uh, it was the kind of main kind of, def you know, um, popularizer of, of the naturalistic fallacy and how bad it is. Okay. <laughs> now, in our comic strip, uh, they have a debate world championship with the 15 time champion fallacy man facing off with the challenger and arch rival basement boy. Uh, and we are supposed to imagine a long debate has happened and, and basement boy says, and that is why we should go back to the gold standard. Okay, so that's his, he's finished his argument. Fallacy man prepares his response. 
Appeal to authority, fallacy of composition, false attribution, inconsistent comparison, nirvana fallacy, kettle logic, argument from repetition. Pow, 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 pow. He just shoots off all these names of informal um, fallacies. How does Basement Boy respond? He takes a cool, calm sip of water. And then he says two devastating words. Fallacy, fallacy. And fallacy man's defeated. What's the fallacy fallacy? Fallacy fallacy is actually a, a, a fallacy. The fallacy fallacy is where you say that a conclusion must be false because all of the arguments you've so far heard are fallacious. Well, that doesn't mean the conclusion's false. It just means you haven't found the right answer yet, right? So let's say if, if, if you, um, you could imagine an atheist who tries to pick a hole in every, like Immanuel Kant picked a hole. He tried to pick a hole in every single well-known argument for the existence of God. Well, even if he were right, and all of the known arguments for the existence of God are fallacious, that doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. To think that it proves that God doesn't exist would be to fall foul of the fallacy fallacy. Okay. Um, so Alan has his hand up. Yes, um, I'd like to ask you whether the Talmud, uh, what kind of logic overall does the Talmud use, inductive or deductive? Very nice. Um, I think that more often than not, in my experiences, um, Talmudic arguments tend to be deductive. There tends to be a shared group of premises that the authors of the Talmud take for granted, like the Torah is true and authoritative, uh, legally authoritative, and various other assumptions. And they try to convince one another that their halachic um, um, conclusions, so to speak, follow from their shared assumptions, deductively, uh, not just more likely, but they're, you know, um, but there are exceptions. I'm sure you can find exceptions. Um, what, what, yeah, carry but on, that, Alan. But that wasn't always the case, particularly before the Rambam. The Rambam, who was the ultimate rationalist, yes, no tolerance for people who did not reason logically, be it inductive or deductive. And the fact that there are different approaches to studying the Talmud, culminating with the Brisker method, with Soloveitchik. But that was very different from what people were doing before, known as the pupil, which was basically what I would call acrobatics. So yes, but I don't, I don't think that Pilpul thought of itself as inductive. I think it thought it was deductive. Um, it, and the critique of, the, uh, of, of some of the, 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 the more brisker um, um, Talmudic scholars was that, that, that actually it was, uh, their arguments were fanciful or far-fetched or, 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 or didn't really follow. But let me just, Say, first of all, you will find inductive arguments in the, in the Talmud. You'll find what's called abductive arguments, which I didn't tell you about. Abductive reasoning is, is called reasoning to best explanation, where there are competing theories for the data and, and 
you go for the more simple one or the more elegant one. You, you see induction, abduction and deduction uh, in the Talmud. My experience has been that most of the arguments are Talmudic. Now you are right, uh, Alan, that there has been, there have been rel rel periods in time in Jewish history in which new degrees of rigor were imposed upon Jewish studies, let's say. Uh, the Rambam imposed a new degree of rigor upon uh, the Talmud, um, not least by ordering it differently, right, uh, around themes rather than these tangential discussions. Um, the Brisker uh, methodology for Talmud study also imposed a certain higher degree of rigor upon the study of Talmud. And I still think they were, you know, on the whole, even before this, they were just doing it better, perhaps. But they were, I think that they were still attempting, even before these uh, increases in rigor, they were attempting deductive logic. Take, for example, you know, um, um, just a normal page of Talmud in which you have, um, in which you have a Mishnah and a Brighter that seem to contradict one another. And then somebody comes up with a possible um, reconciliation, a hypothesis. And then you get proof after proof after proof that the hypothesis can't be right. Like Tashma, they'll say, come and hear this brighter, come and hear that brighter. And you can construct from these deductive arguments against uh, um, the hypothesis that was, you know, you know, and you can see, um, you know, when they try to knock down arguments. So I, you know, I would argue that, um, that we can sometimes understand perhaps even more clearly than the authors of the of the Talmud, um, what the logical structure of their arguments were, and that's a, that's a job to do. Rabbi Soloveitchik speaks in halachic mind about trying to provide a formal logic for the Talmud, but I'll come back to that comment later if we have time. Okay, thank you. Um, my my pleasure. In, in the remainder of this this slide, before we move on to just a taste of formal logic. Um, I thought I'd go through a, a number of well-known fallacies because they're useful to know because you can then spot them when, when, when arguments have gone sour. Argumentum ad ignorantium. It means just because, just because nobody's proven that there are no ghosts, it doesn't, it doesn't mean there must be ghosts, right? Um, so sometimes people think lack of proof for a thing is proof for the opposite. It's kind of similar to the, the fallacy fallacy, um, but it's one to look out for. Argument ad populum. This is what um, popularism as a political ideology or a political kind of um, phenomenon engages in. It's using rhetoric to, to win popular support for a conclusion without any appeal to evidence. So you use popular language or emotive language or language you know because you know um, you know your audience. So you know which words are more likely to shake them up, and therefore you think you have a stronger argument. It's not a stronger argument, and that to think it's stronger just because it's kind of got more emotive pull over your audience is an argumentum ad populum. There's a fallacy of accidents. Here's a nice example of one. What you bought yesterday, you eat today. You bought raw meat yesterday, therefore you eat raw meat today. Well, that's not a good argument. 
And the reason it's not a good argument is the rawness of the meat is what philosophers call an accidental property of the meat. It's not, it's not of the essence of the meat, right? And that's, and that's where this argument goes wrong. Um, what you bought yesterday, you eat today. You bought raw meat yesterday, therefore you eat um, dead animal today. That might be a better argument, right? Because meat is inherently, essentially dead animal. The meat isn't inherently or essentially raw. Uh, the rawness or cookedness of the meat is what we call an accidental property. It's something that can change. Um, and the fallacy of action that doesn't pay attention to that, to that important distinction between the things which are of the essence of the object and the things which are merely accidental. Hasty generalizations. This is when you, you focus on an accident of the of the object and and pretend that it's like shared by by uh, all such objects for example opioids are good in certain medical situations yeah therefore opioids should be freely available well no they're good in some situations that doesn't mean they're good in all situations that would be a hasty generalization false cause arguments Correlation doesn't prove causation. Just because you always see two things together, it doesn't mean that the one thing causes the other. And this is a major problem in the philosophy of science. How do you actually establish that one thing causes another? It's not good enough to say you always see them together. And if that's all you've got, um, that's a false cause argument. This is a well-known one, Petitio Principi, which is begging the question. Sometimes it's harder to see than other times. Is the conclusion assumed in the premises of the argument? If the, if the conclusion is somehow assumed, perhaps hidden, but assumed in the premises, then you haven't proven your conclusion. You've just assumed it. Okay, so that's what begging the question is. Fantasy of equivocation. Bertold asked a fabulous question about the word authority. My answer was that that word can actually have two meanings. And when you're engaged in logical arguments, you need to be really careful with words that have more than one meaning. Otherwise you get a monstrosity like the following one. I keep my money in the bank. A bank is the land alongside the river. Therefore, I keep my money in the land alongside the river. That argument makes a fallacy of equivocation, okay? It uses one word in two different ways. Um, all the premises are true, but the, but the argument isn't even valid because it's used, it's used one word with two meanings. Similarly, you can have an argument called a fallacy of amphiboly, which isn't where a single word has more than one meaning, but it's where an entire sentence can be read in more than one way. So Croacus went to war with Cyrus, right? And before he did that, he went to the Oracle at Delphi and said, should I go to war? And the oracle at Delphi said, if Croacus went to war with Cyrus, he would destroy a mighty kingdom. So Croacus feels, oh, great. I'll go to war and destroy a mighty kingdom. And he loses and he's destitute, but he survives. And he goes back to the oracle at Delphi and complains bitterly. And the oracle at Delphi says, I didn't say anything false. I said, if you go to war with Cyrus, you will destroy a powerful kingdom. And you did, your own. 
by losing a war, right? So what you have is one sentence that could be read in two very different ways. Um, and, and sometimes an argument looks attractive, but only by reading a premise in a way that you shouldn't read it or something like that. That would be a fallacy of amphiboly. There's the kettle fallacy when you use multiple but inconsistent arguments for the same conclusion, right? Um, or even for multiple conclusions. You wanna make sure that not only do all the things you believe are true, but that all the arguments for all the various things that you believe are consistent with one another. Otherwise you've got a problem. Otherwise you've fallen foul of the kettle fallacy. There's the fallacy of composition, which is when you attribute to a whole, a property that only belongs to the parts. For example, since every element of the machine was light, the machine itself must be light. No, that's stupid, right? If you get enough light things, you'll, you'll create a heavy hole. Um, but people actually fall foul of this fallacy from time to time, as they do the fallacy of division. Microsoft is a very important corporation. I work for Microsoft, therefore, I'm very important person. Well, that's to attribute something which belongs to the whole of which you're a part to you, just a part of that whole. That's the fallacy of division. Okay, how much longer do I have? Because uh, I have whole, uh, a series of slides dev devoted to formal logic. As long as uh, we're here all night, Rabbi. <laughs> well, I'll just, I'll just go a little bit longer. Um, we've spoken about informal logic but I wanted to just show you some of the joys of formal logic. To understand the element that the necessary elements of formal logic, let me tell you this. A proposition, when philosophers talk about propositions, they just mean a sentence that makes an assertion about how the world is. So not an exclamation, not a question, not a demand. A description of the world, an assertion about how the world is, that's a proposition. In logic, we use logical connectives to, to connect propositions to each other. What do I mean by that? Well, there's conjunction, the word and, which can be used to join two propositions together. So let P be the proposition that Paris is the capital of France. Let Q be the, 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 um, the proposition that London is the capital of England. Or you can join those two propositions, P and Q together to create a new proposition, P and Q. Or P or Q, the V there we use to make the word, the, the word or. Or if P then Q, which just means if Paris is the capital of France, then London is the capital of England. Or P if and only if Q, that's what that means. It means they both entail one another. There's a mutual entailment. And not P. So you take a proposition and you add this, the negation, that last one, is funny. Logicians call it a, a connective, even though it doesn't actually connect propositions. You just connect it on to the end of one proposition and you create a new proposition. So any proposition that contains a connective, so for instance, all these propositions here, P and Q, P or Q, et cetera, all these ones up here, any proposition that contains at least one connective is called a molecular proposition. And a proposition with no connectives is called an atomic proposition. So you can form molecular propositions by joining atomic ones together by the connectives. Everyone with me so far? 
little bit complicated, but it's only because I'm using fancy language. It's actually simple. Okay. Ludwig Wittgenstein discovered that he was really standing on the shoulders of Russell and Frege, who was standing on the shoulders of Bulos, who was standing on the shoulders of many others. He discovered that you can make these funny things called truth tables. So take our two propositions, P and Q. Paris is the capital of France. London is the capital of England. It could be any, any two propositions you like, it doesn't matter. The beauty of formal logic is we're not interested in the meaning of the propositions. We're interested in the structure of your argument, right? And sometimes we get lost because of rhetoric or poetry and it obscures the structure of the argument. So take the words away and just replace them with letters and let's see if the structure of the argument gives rise to validity. So you've got P and Q. It's possible that they're both true. That's the first row. Do you see here, T, T, they're both true together. It's possible that they're both false. That's the bottom row. And the middle rows show you the possibilities of one being true while the other one's false. Are you with me? So these four rows represent all of the possibilities. I don't even know what P and Q means, but I know they're either both true, they're both false, or one's true without the other one being false. There are four options. With me? That's the table. Now, P and Q is only true if both P and Q are true. You see that? So this here is what we call the truth table for conjunction. It's true only if P and Q are true and it's false in all the other rows because conjunction requires that both conjuncts are true. Got it? Here's, here's disjunction, P or Q. Well, that's true as long as one of the, the disjuncts is true, right? They don't both need to be true. One of them needs to be true. So that means it's true here because P and Q are true. It's true here because P is true. It's true here because Q is true. It's only false here where P and Q are both false, okay? We can do the same for if P then Q. This is a little controversial, there's some debate about it, but the basic idea here is that, well, when you say if P then Q, it means if P is true, then Q is true. Well, it must therefore be true on the, on the first row because P is true and Q is true. Some people, yeah, but what you really mean when you say if P then Q, you really mean that P causes Q or something like that. And this doesn't prove that. But for, for the logicians, it's enough. Uh, they're both true together if P then Q is true. But look, if P is true and Q is false, but you said, if P then Q, but here P is true and Q is false, then the entailment must also be false, okay? The last two rows are also a bit complicated because the idea is anything follows from a falsehood, right? Because if you're willing to accept something false, then anything goes. For instance, like if it's true that I'm the president of China, then two plus two equals seven, because I'm, I'm not the president of China. And once you've kind of accepted a falsehood, this is a principle known as explosion. Once you've, once you've accepted a falsehood, then anything goes, right? 
So whenever the antecedent, whenever P is false, the entailment is true. Because if you're willing to accept something false, then truth emerges wherever. This claim that P and Q are equivalent is only true where P and Q have the same truth value. Well, they have the same truth value here. They have the same truth value here, where they're both false. So it's true when they're both true. It's false when they're, it's, so it's true when they're both false. It's true when they're both true. And it's false wherever the value of P and Q differ. And here's not P. Not P is, is true wherever P is false. And not P is false wherever P is true. With me so far? I'm almost done to our whistle stop tour. Now, how do we use these truth tables? Are they, are they useful? Yeah, they are. Look at the, the truth table of P and Q and the truth table of P or Q. Do you see they're kind of mirror images of one another? Because the one of them has truth at the top row and then falsehood all the way down. Whereas P, and Q, P or Q has falsehood at the bottom and truth all the way up. Kind of mirror image of one another? Well, now I'm gonna hopefully blow your minds. This proposition here says it's not the case that not P and not Q, okay? That's what it says. It's not the case that not P and not Q. Well, let's break it down. Not Q is false on every line of the table where Q is true. And not Q is true on every line of the table where Q is false. With me? Not P is false on every line of the table where P is true, and true on every line of the table where P is false. So now we're ready to say, what's the truth value? What's the truth table for this and in the middle of the brackets? Not P and not Q, what's the truth value? Well, it's only gonna be true where both of the conjuncts are true. So it's only gonna be true on the bottom line. There we go, it's true on the bottom line. So let's get rid of that, make it a bit clearer. It's not the case that not P and not Q means we need to take these F's and T's and reverse them. T, 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 F, instead of, let you see my arrow, T, 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 F, uh, instead of F, 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 T. We've now just worked out together using truth tables. Sorry, we've just worked out what the truth table is for this strange. And look, it's exactly the same truth table as the truth table for P or Q. These two, they look exactly the same. So we've just now proven that P or Q is equivalent to not, not P and not Q. Wow, we've just proven something in logic together using truth tables. Isn't that wonderful? And what I'm trying to show you is that it, it doesn't even matter what P and Q mean. They could be any two sentences in the world. Take away the meanings of the words, look at the structure of the arguments, and you can start to see whether things are entailed deductively or not. And that's what the science of formal logic is all about. 
just give you one more quick example. Here's an, here's an argument with three premises, and they could be any three sentences in the world, P, Q, and R. Premise one is P. Premise two is if P, then Q. Premise, premise three is if Q, then R. In an argument, you assume the premises are true for the sake of argument. So let's assume that those three sentences are true. What can we derive? Well, first of all, from line one and two, I can derive the Q. Because if it's true that P is true, and if it's true that if P then Q is true, then it's true that Q is true. So I've derived Q, congratulations, well done. But now I've got Q on the table, I can derive R. Because R follows from, from line four and, from, oh, sorry, from line, it really should have said from line four and line three. I made a mistake there in my PowerPoint. It follows from the fact that Q and if Q then R, R follows. Very nice. And the truth table will show you the same thing. Okay. What, what the truth, I'm not going to go through it with you, but this long, this big thing here, P and if P then Q and if Q then R is just the conjunction of all of our premises. It's the conjunction of one, two, and three. Okay. So I, I work out what the truth value is of if P then Q. I work out what the truth value is of if Q then R. I know what the, the okay, so then I can do this inner conjunction. And then I work out what the truth value is of, of T, of P, sorry, which I know already. And that's gonna give me that conjunction, okay? And that is the truth uh, table for the conjunction of all my premises. And if this argument, the argument on our left, if that's a valid argument, that when, whenever the premises are true, the conclusion must be true. And the conclusion is Q and R. Now find the, the only line where all the premises are true. It's this line. And look, R is true. Right, so, so the, the truth table shows it is one way of doing it, or you can learn rules of deduction, it's another way of doing it. There's one area of logic I'm not going to share with you today. It's the only area that the Rambam really focuses on in his logic book. But the thing is what contemporary logicians have discovered is, it is it's nigh on impossible to do the topic justice without going through the more simpler forms of logic I've just shown you. Um, but it's quantified logic or, or what logicians call predicate calculus. All men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. It's a classic syllogism, a well-known argument. To really get to the logical structure of that argument and to see its validity in symbols, what you have to see is that there are two predicates here, is a man, and is mortal. And it's about how they relate to one another. So we can no longer have a symbol to represent a whole proposition. We need to know something about the structure of the proposition as a predicate, and it has something that it's about. So all men are mortal in contemporary quantified logic comes there for any X, if X is, is a man, then X is mortal. S is a man, Therefore, S is mortal. 
and how these symbols work, these X's, this upside down A is a, a story for another time. But you can see I'm still using some of the symbols from our more simplified logic, the arrow, right? Um, nobody knew really until Gottlob Frege, this guy, this guy over here is Aristotle. This guy over here is the anti-Semite logician. It's a shame that he was. Gottlob Frege, um, until Gottlob Frege, no one really realized that this sentence here, all men are mortal, is actually a conditional. It's an if-then claim. It really means for any X, if X is a man, then X is mortal. And, and it's a long story, but by recognizing that, he unlocked huge riddles that had, had kept medieval logic absolutely uh, kind of um, um, static. Um, anyway, if you are interested in these things we've spoken about, especially the, the more formal side of logic, how those, those upside down A's and X's work, this quantified logic is when we talk about, you know, every X, for any X, all men are mortal, you know, uh, um, there is a man uh, uh, who's mortal. Uh, those are quantified uh, propositions and they play a very special role in logic. If you're interested in further reading, there's a really great little introduction to, to, to all of this called a very short introduction, logic, logic, a very short introduction. It's part of an Oxford University Press series uh, um, of very short introductions. Some of them are nowhere near as good in the series of very short introductions as this one. A disclaimer, Graham Priest is a very, very um, controversial logician because he thinks that there are some true contradictions, which almost nobody else believes. Um, but he explains why he believes that and why nobody else believes that in the book. But it's a, a fabulous little introduction. For those who are even more serious, uh, Copy, Cohen, and McMahon have a, have a book called Introduction to Logic. It's more like a real textbook that you could work through. Um, about Rav Soloveitchik, this goes back to Alan Harris's question. Um, Rav Soloveitchik says in Halachic Mind, if you look at these truth tables, there's only two possible values, true and false. Everything is either true or false. That's called a binary logic because it's only got two values. Rabbi Soloveitchik suggests, I think it's even in a footnote in Halachic Mind, that Talmudic logic might be completely different. It might be what he calls a many-valued logic. Uh, there's not just true and false, but there are degrees of truth and degrees of falsehood. That would require a completely different um, formal logic. But that's very, very advanced stuff. I just wanted to know it exists. Anyway, the conclusion is, I hope, having a grasp of informal logic, understanding where common fallacies lie, is just useful for a thinking person. Because sometimes we are beguiled by the superficial uh, uh, qualities of an argument when there are actually fallacies hiding beneath the surface. And to know and to categorize all of the possible fallacies is useful. It makes it more likely that you'll catch them. The more formal type of logic is a harder thing to learn. It's a symbolic art like mathematics. But what I try to show you is that it's quite powerful. And if you master it, 
you're sometimes able to detect fallacies uh, and, and invalidity uh, where you wouldn't have noticed it before. And you can take any argument between Rava and Abaye, try to figure out what are the logical connectives, the ands, the if-thens, the ors, those are the things you don't delete, okay? And which parts of the argument can just be replaced by P, Q, R, S, T. And then you can draw truth tables for a Talmudic argument, and thereby you'll see whether it's valid, at least according to traditional logic, binary logic. So I hope you've seen at least the usefulness of, of both informal and formal logic, um, and you have some further reading if you are interested in taking it further. I'll hang on for anyone who has questions, but I don't want to keep people here um, hostage. So, oh. That, that was fascinating. I, I, as a matter of fact, that's what was behind my question earlier about the logic in the Talmud. Mm. And I understand that the Rav of Soloveitchik and his predecessors were um, of the opinion, I think, that the Talmud is the pursuit of truth, that there is no absolute truth. Is that what you think uh, the Rob was well, saying in the Halakhic man? I, I want to hedge my bets because the Rob's philosophy and his epistemology, his, his theory of knowledge, was so dazzlingly, dazzlingly complicated that it's easy to make error. Um, but I'll say this not about the Rav, I'll just say this about the Talmud in general. As I said to Bertold, legal disputes are sometimes a little bit different to other forms of disputes because they create fact. They don't just describe it. Right? So a mathematician is trying to understand the relationship between numbers. Those relationships already exist, but we just haven't discovered them all yet, right? So when mathematicians are arguing or physicists are arguing, they're arguing about how the world is beyond them, but about parts of the world which we haven't quite yet discovered to our satisfaction or, or, you know, or got clarity about. Legal disputes, by contrast, sometimes create new fact. So two parliamentarians are arguing about how the law should be, and then they have a vote and they create law. Or two judges in the, in, 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 in the judiciary are arguing about how a law should be interpreted. But in the end, once they have a vote, their interpretation creates a new fact, which is that this is now how the law should be interpreted. So um, at least in legal disputes, you're often dealing with an, um, a, an area of the world in which there is, no, there is no truth or falsehood yet, but the truth or falsehood will be determined by its pursuit, which is to kind of twist the words you used a little bit. Um, and I think really that's what the famous Gemara Bamatsia has in mind when it says, it doesn't say this side and this side both have truth on their side. It's both this side and this side have God on their side, right? Because they're both like legitimate views and the truth hasn't yet been decided, but the legal truth was later decided when we paskin like Hillel instead of Shammai. Um, I don't know if that I don't know if that's useful to you, but nonetheless, even in legal even in legal arguments where the truth isn't yet established, lawyers use logic. So these so these uh, these modes of argument, both informal and formal, 
both inductive and inductive, you will find them in the Talmud. In fact, here's a challenge for homework. Go and read Graham Priest's Logic, a very short introduction, then take a nice, you know, um, clear rabbinic argument, like the first few pages of Beitzer, for example, and try and write it out formally and try and see whether the arguments on either side are valid by using truth tables. It's possible, it can be done. It's using tools that Rava and Abaye didn't have, but that doesn't mean that their arguments weren't valid and it doesn't mean you can't use these tools to prove it. So, so since just very briefly, Kabura is uh, more in line with the Sfaradi Mizrahi philosophy. And we heard the other day from Rabbi Abadi that there was a difference in the way Sephardim and Ashkenazim learned the Gemara. Mm -hmm. Starting with the Rambam, basically, in essence, tongue in cheek, told everyone, you really don't need to read uh, to, to learn the Torah and uh, the Talmud anymore because I'm giving you Mishneh Torah and it's all there. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if I understand Rabbi Abadi, we ended up with the Sfaradim studying the Gemara in terms of geography, location, trying to balance the, the, the pros and cons, whereas the more intellectual gymnastics, particularly of the brisker, but the brisker is pretty recent. It goes back to the 19th century. Uh, before that, I actually don't know what the, the Ashkenazim were doing. They were, I think they were doing more pilpul than, 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 than basically what we, we call today the brisker in other terms, which was really rational, logical kind of, I mean, it's quite incredible that you hear that there are other approaches to learning Gemara that are not necessarily uh, underpinned by logic or rationality, because there's a lot of things that are not terribly rational in, in the Gemara. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to get carried away here, but because we are, by and large, and I have to be an Ashkenaz, so I have to be a Litvak, so, uh, I'm a, I'm a kind of disciple and learned uh, the Brisker method. But I've always thought that it was too rigorous, was too rigorous and that the intellectual analysis was for the really for the sake of what I would call, uh, not to be dismissive, but intellectual acrobatics, whereas the Sephardim were more practical. Well, um, let me just say br briefly in response to what you said, First of all, let's let's be clear. Parts of the Talmud are not in, interested in inference. Parts of the Talmud are agadic. It tells stories, legend, folklore, and and um, they're not interested. That those parts of the Talmud are very very important, but they're not interested in inference. They're doing something else: suggestion, association. Okay. Um, but much of the the Talmud is interested in logic. Um, next. I'm not particularly keen on casting a too tight essentialism about the Sephardi Ashkenazi divide. There were Ashkenazi mystics and there were Ashkenazi rationalists and there were Sephardi mystics and there were Sephardi rationalists. Nonetheless, um, apart from in Provence, um, where you have Gersonides uh, and his circle in the Mi'iri, um, the most enlightened medieval Jews 
were Spanish, Portuguese and, and Sephardi. So I take it when the Chabur is talking about the great Sephardi tradition of enlightened Torah, it's, it's, it's thinking mainly back to that kind of golden era. But then later on, there were times where the most enlightened Jews were Italian and there were times where the most enlightened Jews were perhaps German, right? Um, uh, it, depending on how you measure uh, enlightenedness. And uh, I, thank God we're all part of one uh, Am uh, and we, we, we have the, the great schut, especially in these times of Kibbutz Galiut, where, we, where we've come together in the land of Israel where I live, uh, where we can draw from the best uh, of, of all of those traditions. Uh, um, and, and that's, that's what, what I do. Now, more specifically with regard to what you say, yes, it's true that the brisker Torah was very much about kind of gymnastics and Sephardi, Sephardi learning took on a, a much more kind of bottom line halakha um, attitude, maybe maybe in the wake of the, the, the Mishnah Torah. But it's not clear to me that that was what the Rambam really wanted. The Rambam says the Mishnah Torah replaces Talmud in a sense for the masses, for the Amcha. And he wrote the, he wrote the Mishnah Torah in Hebrew when he normally wrote in Arabic. And the reason he wrote the Mishnah Torah in Hebrew is he wanted it to be accessible to the entire Jewish world, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, everybody. And and, and it was, it was studied, you know, immediately studied and criticized quite harshly by, by a number of Ashkenazim. Um, Avraham Benarambam tells us, and I don't know how authoritative this is, I don't want to make a fallacy of argument from authority, but he probably knows better than anybody else. It's more likely to be true than the testimony of someone else. Avraham Benarambam tells us that um, every judge every rabbinic judge uh, should judge each case as it strikes them. The Mishnah Torah is just a guide for those people and they should go back to the Gemara and they should consult and they should. The Rambam wasn't looking to replace Talmud scholarship for the elite. He was looking to make halacha more accessible to people who don't have time for that. But that doesn't mean that in, in, in a Maimonidean yeshiva, people wouldn't be involved in really hair-splitting Talmudic exegesis. And even, according to Avram ben Rambam, each person should feel free to come to a different ruling than the Rambam if, if it strikes them that way, having read, having learned the sukya themselves. It's not like he wouldn't encourage people to do that. And it seems to me that in learning Talmud well, the Rambam may well have appreciated the sort of uh, intellectual gymnastics that, that Reb Chaim of Brisk uh, introduced. Because God knows the Rambam was interested in logic and in rigor. Um, so to the extent that, that Sephardi learning became very interested in bottom line after the Rambam, it's not clear to me that that would have been the Rambam's intent. But either way, I'm not personally, I'm not all that interested in, um, in, in essentializing these traditions. I just want to take what I think is best from all of them. <laughs> you know, and to be inspired by all of them. I'm personally a mongrel, right? Uh, I've got, I, I, I've got um, Russian and Polish blood. My, my grandfather was, a, my, my paternal grandfather was a convert. So I, you know, I'm a mixture of, of, of all things and, and I'm, I'm grateful to live in these times where, where we're able to. I'm very, 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 very excited about the, 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 um, the Chaburah and its work.
and I share its, I share its, um, it's holding that golden period of, of Angela C and uh, Jury, um, you know, in great esteem. I share that. Oh, thank you uh, so much, Rabbi. Um, I don't mean to stifle any more no, um, no, incredible no, you... conversation, but uh, out sure. of consideration of time, I agree. Uh, we can Jonathan move. Rahmani should should send me an email. He's absolutely free to. Uh, Samuel underscore Liebens, that's my name with an underscore between my first and family name, at hotmail.com, which apparently makes me a Luddite. I don't know why, but all my students laugh at me when I say I have a Hotmail account. I do. There you go. So you're, you're also on a Discord, Rabbi, on our members' Discord. I'm also so on can, Discord. You can spam the Rabbi over there. Uh, thank you so much for that incredible shear, and uh, thank you, everyone, for joining. My pleasure. Uh, we'll have I hope Monday. it wasn't too hard. I hope, you know, these things are not easy, but uh, we wanted to go to that next level. I, I hope you enjoyed it. This is only a part one. We have another two, two uh, lectures coming on from the rabbi. Stay tuned. Yes. And uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Less mathematical next time, I promise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.